Today is Friday, May 26, 2023. This is Quick Start from CBN News. I'm Dan Andros. Reaction as Governor DeSantis breaks Twitter with his presidential announcement and Trump responds as well. We'll have that top story and more on today's podcast where we bring you news from a Christian perspective. Subscribe, leave a rating, share it with a friend. Email us, quickstartpodcast at cbn.org. We'd love to hear from you. And we're glad you're here as we're getting through the news of the cray each and every weekday, 7 a.m., bright and early. And joining me as Billy and Trey are still on assignment uh, is Madison Seals. Madison, happy Friday. We have just about made it to the weekend. How's it going? Yes. Happy Friday. It's It's been a busy week, so that three-day weekend's going to hit differently. <laughs> yes, indeed. It sure will. And uh, and I feel like, in a way, it's been busy, but like with DeSantis and Trump entering in, it feels to me like things are just getting started. Like, we, we've got a long road ahead for the next couple years, I think, with all this politics coverage. Oh, yeah. Anyone who was wondering when DeSantis and the others were going to throw their hats in, no worries. There's going to be plenty of time for us to debate all of this. So, yeah. yeah. Like you said, it's been busy. And it looks like they're going to go back and forth. So there'll be plenty of sound bites for us to chew on uh, over the next few months. But we're going to tackle a lot on the podcast as always today. And Madison, what do we have coming up on the focus story? Well, we mentioned this story briefly in yesterday's episode, but I think it's worth digging into a little bit. Earlier this week on Monday, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper said that the state's education system is in a state of emergency. And his reason behind this declaration is because the GOP proposed some changes to the curriculum, which we'll talk about today. Very interesting move and uh, from a strategy perspective, but we'll dive into that. Looking forward to it. Also on the main thing, Justice John Roberts had some comments on the recent calls for reform. CBN's John Stolness dives into all that on the main thing. But first, we're going to get through the news here in 90 seconds. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis literally broke Twitter for a little bit on his campaign announcement Wednesday night. He formally stated his intentions to run for president in 2024. He had to delay his announcement over Twitter's tech issues. There were so many people trying to get into this audio space to listen to this announcement. The whole interaction was hosted by Elon Musk. Donald Trump wasted no time in attacking DeSantis, claiming Florida had a worse response to COVID than New York did, even though disgraced Governor Andrew Cuomo is most remembered for his COVID town halls, which were later overshadowed by the fact that he forced elderly COVID patients to go into nursing homes where many died and then covered that decision up. Black Lives Matter, the national organization, is at risk of going bankrupt after its finances plunged $8.5 million into the red last year. This wall simultaneously handing multiple staff members seven-figure salaries. Roberta Landry, Brian Landry's mother, wrote a letter to her son that's getting a lot of attention now. In it, she claimed, uh, which she claimed it was written before her son's trip in which Gabby Petito was killed and uh, Brian's accused of killing her. In it, she quotes Romans 8.38 and talks about how she'll love her son no matter what and even help him dispose of a body if she needs to. And those are just some of today's top headlines. You can check out those stories and more over at CBN News. Dot com. Madison, I was curious on this story, and I, I wanted to bring it up because I don't know if you caught this letter from Roberta Landry. They Because they initially denied helping their son. Uh, you might remember the case if you're kind of remembering, oh, I re- that sounds vaguely familiar. But essentially what happened was Gabby Petito and, and Brian Landry went on this cross-country trip. 
she goes missing and then it's later discovered that she was killed um acute uh, by allegedly by brian landry and so then there were questions of did the parents help him as he was on the run and they found this letter and it says i'll just read a little bit from it it says if you're in jail um I will bake a cake and put a file in it. If you need to dispose of a body, I will show up with a shovel and garbage bags. If you fly to the moon, I'll be watching the skies for your re-entry and just a whole bunch of other things. But then she says, Therefore, I'm certain that neither death nor life nor angels nor ruling spirits nor things present nor things to come nor powers from above nor powers from below. um, Nothing in the entire created world can separate our love. She kind of butchers the quote there. It's obviously very reminiscent of Romans 8.38, but it's talking about the love of Christ, not, and we'll get into this later on the last thing, but uh, I just found it interesting that this mom is going, was willing to go this far for her son, and I think it's so misguided, right? Like, if your son does wrong, you can still love them, but make them face justice. Right, yeah, it is a very eerie and kind of disturbing letter. I mean, for one, just this relationship between the mother and the son, it just seems very um, odd. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it, the way that she talks to him, but then also the fact that she claims the letter was written before her son's trip as if that makes it look any better. And in my mind, I'm thinking it does seem like she's in some way involved in this. So there's the aiding and abetting angle. But then if she wrote this before, then it makes it seem premeditated too. So I think it makes it look worse. And yet she's using that as a, I don't know, trying to clear her name or something. Yeah. It's, it's not good either way. I mean, you don't, you don't write to someone and say, I'll dispose of a body. I mean, you're willing to say you're going to commit a crime. Quite mm-hmm. literally, too, because that's how much you love your child. But as a Christian, you know, you have to go, yes, you got to love your child. But sometimes loving your child is saying, hey, you need to turn yourself in. You did something wrong. That is the right thing to do right now. Not cover it up. What are you teaching your kids by saying, I'll cover up all the bad things you did and keep you out of justice? Because God is justice. And so if you escape the police here in this life, you are not going to escape that in the next. So I don't know. It just had me thinking about when loved ones get in trouble or do something wrong. I think sometimes that's where people fall short and they, you know, maybe not as serious on this level, but maybe in a smaller circumstance where you're kind of confronted with, I don't know, what should I do? Should I face the music or can we skirt around this? And I think it's a good reminder that, no, you need to do the right thing even when it's hard. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And even the way we approach scripture, too, like you said, it's kind of she's kind of twisting scripture through this that adds to that just eerie, disturbing element. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, we're going to move on here as we have more stories to get to. And, you know, I'm interested in this one as well, because I'd never seen a governor do something quite like this. And is in North Carolina, and he declared a state of emergency for quite an unusual reason. So what what changes did the GOP actually propose here that led to this declaration? So there's actually six bills currently moving through the North Carolina legislature that caused some panic on the left, clearly. Two of them are related to private school vouchers, which is part of the school choice debate that we'll talk about in a minute. And four of them are about giving politicians and parents more control over what material is allowed in school curriculums. You know, really drastic things. Yeah. And this term school choice, it's a popular topic in the education debate. So why don't we talk about what school choice actually is? Yeah, this term gets either a lot of support or a lot of flack. There seems to be no 
no in-between. You either passionately support it or you passionately oppose it. But what it actually represents in a nutshell are the many ways that students can access their K-12 education. School choice allows public education funds to follow students to the schools that best fit their needs, whether that's public or private, charter, homeschool, or even some special needs programs. So in a time when children are dealing with drastic mental health issues, school shootings, not to mention the issues with curriculum that we so often discuss on this podcast, many parents are engaging in the school choice debate and desiring more control over where their kids go, which is understandable, but some like Governor Cooper are very opposed to this. He said, public education powers our workforce, builds our businesses, and boosts our communities. Unfortunately, our public schools are under assault. And then he goes on to say that the GOP's, quote, extreme legislation would cripple the public education system. But I think it's interesting how he says our public schools, because when he says our, he doesn't mean families and communities. He means the government. Mm. If he really was for parents or if he really was for what parents want, then school choice would make sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also kind of ironic as Corey DeAngelis is uh, someone who's big on this issue, the school choice issue. He's out there, big presence on social media, constantly tweeting and posting about these bills that get passed. Uh, similar to how this one is here in North Carolina that that the governor is responding to. But DeAngelis pointed out that Governor Cooper sent his own kids to private school. So mm-hmm. it seems very hypocritical to have the statements that he's saying that the, the public schools are the lifeblood of the communities, yada, yada, yada. If they're so great, why did you pay tens of thousands of dollars to send to not send your kids there? Um, right. it, it seems like you're sending sort of a conflicting message there. And maybe maybe this is a little bit of opportunism. But um, it, 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 and so why did he let's just I'll backtrack here a little bit. Why why would he label this and or at least what's his rationale for labeling this a state of emergency? Well, regardless of what side you fall on regarding the school choice debate, it it does seem a bit dra- a bit dramatic or drastic. Governor Cooper said the state of public education is no less important than other emergencies. And that's how he was defending calling this an emergency. But I would say that the state of public education is the emergency. And I think a lot of parents feel that way. And I don't think that Governor Cooper or others who oppose school choice are really afraid of losing valuable workers. They're really afraid of losing control Mm. because when you take kids out of government controlled schools or actually when you give kids a chance to pick where they want to go to school and they choose private Christian or home schools, the government loses some control over what those kids are being taught and who they're being influenced by. So extremists can no longer push an appropriate sex ed on elementary school students or punish teachers for not referring to students by their preferred pronouns. And so those students might actually develop a worldview contrary to those things. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's a very bizarre notion that um, this is somehow harmful to have choices, to have people have options. I mean, we've seen entire documentaries on kids who are trapped in certain schools that are underperforming schools and they have no way to get out of there because they don't have the means to, to afford a private school, and yet all their tax dollars are going into the public school system. And I saw it, I heard someone say it the other day that monopolies don't like competition. And right now, the government schools have basically a monopoly on 
education. And so anything that comes in that offers a threat to that, which would be empowering parents and families by letting them have a choice of what to do with their tax dollars instead of it being forced into one particular education system. And, you know, full yeah. disclosure here, I'm very biased. We've homeschooled our kids and we continue to homeschool our kids. My my oldest daughter just graduated high school this year. And um, it's just, I watch people go to these town hall meetings, Madison, and they're saying, it's like, I'm watching them beg for them to change things up. You got, please just change this. And I keep, I'm, I'm screaming at my monitor and my screens, just stop begging for scraps from Caesar's table and take matters into your own hand and just take control of your own education any way you can to right. educate your own kids. And I know that's difficult, but look, like you said, I mean, it's a state of emergency. The actual state of how, how they're educating these children with some of the radical things that are going on. So I think d desperate times call for desperate measures, essentially. Yeah. And I think a misunderstanding around school choice, too, is that it's promoting Christian schools, but that's not the case at all. It's just giving families a choice to choose what's best yeah. for their children. And if that happens to be a school with a curriculum that matches their Christian beliefs, then that should be their right, the parent's right to influence their child in that direction. Because contrary to what some aggressive progressives would have you believe today, parents do know what their children do know their children best and they know what's best for their children. Yeah, absolutely. And look, if they're going to in my uh, county here and in the school system that my tax dollars fund, they just hired recently a DEI specialist who has a healthy six figure salary. I didn't have any choice in that. I didn't have any choice in my tax dollars going towards that. So um, it's parents, I think, are getting frustrated that, hey, you're doing all this stuff. You're foisting this stuff on us. But then I have I have no way of, you know, easily if I disagree, doing something else with my education. And so it's uh, it's certainly an issue that is, um, I think, growing in controversy. And I think parents are, I think we might be seeing the beginnings of essentially maybe a revolt at some point, because I think, I think parents are quite frustrated. So I appreciate you bringing that story, Madison. We're going to head over to the main thing now. And Justice John Roberts, he recently commented, on calls for reform in the court. This kind of came after activists tried to basically tarnish Justice Clarence Thomas with accusations of unethical behavior. Well, CBN's John Stolness has the details with USA Today Supreme Court reporter John Fritzi on today's main thing. So, John, ethics at the Supreme Court has become a major topic in recent months with growing concerns that relationships and deals some of the justices may or may not have made over the years could be impacting their objectivity on the bench. And this week, Chief Justice John Roberts spoke about these concerns and the calls for ethics reform in the Supreme Court. Does he think that the court is doing enough in this right now? You know, that's an excellent question. I think Roberts's main concern right now is trying to ensure that Congress doesn't do something. Um, I think he feels, and he said, uh, that he feels like Congress would be overstepping its uh, authority by um, imposing some sort of a code of ethics. And there are a lot of bills floating around on that front. I think there's debate in the legal community about that, but that's certainly where Roberts is. And of course, Roberts is one of his main goals of his tenure has been to maintain the independence of the Supreme Court. And so when he thinks about these interbranch disputes, um, I think he will be remembered for 
um, fiercely defending the independence of the Supreme Court, of the federal judiciary. So I think that's sort of where he's coming from. I do think, you know, uh, one of the things that's interesting is when we write about these things often, you know, you can't get all the quotes in. Um, in this case, what Roberts said uh, this week uh, at a dinner in D.C., um, all he didn't say very much. And all of the quotes got in. So folks can go look at it and figure out the context for themselves. He did frame this as a concern inside the court, which I thought was interesting. Um, he has in the past sort of defended the status quo uh, and argued that the court has done a pretty good job policing this stuff. And so I think it's interesting that he's raised this. And I think there's a lot of questions about what exactly he meant. One last point on this. Um, he didn't really give us any specifics about what he meant. So, you know, we don't know what he has in mind. Here. You made the point just a second ago that he 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 wants to maintain the separation of the branches. But I know Democratic senators in particular want to get involved in this process. And I guess from where from your coverage of of this story, how how close are we to Congress getting involved in imposing some kind of code of ethics on Supreme Court justices? I don't think very close. I think, uh, honestly, there's just not a lot of support for this uh, among Republicans. I think um, there is some support among Republicans. You know, it's interesting that this, uh, the issue of ethics at the Supreme Court um, wasn't always as partisan an issue as it is now. There were times when um, there was some Republican and Democratic interest in at least maybe opening up some transparency um, on the court. And um, now we have a bill uh, and we have uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Republican um, on on that legislation. Um, but that's that's pretty much it. And I think, you know, in some ways, I think this debate over um, Supreme Court ethics has been caught up in some of the decisions and um, particularly the, the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I think Republicans see these efforts as um, on transparency and ethics as sort of a, uh, a response to that uh, by Democrats. Democrats, of course, uh, view that differently and say that's not the case. Um, but, uh, you know, whether who's right or wrong in that, I think, um, matters less than the fact that um, there does not appear to be a lot of bipartisan support right now for this. Um, and I think maybe the Democratic strategy is just to sort of keep the pressure on um, uh, and see what happens after the next election. But I, I think it's unlikely um, that we'll see um, uh, legislation you know, actually moving on this uh, anytime soon. And I know the brouhaha over all this really began with the ProPublica report about Justice Clarence Thomas and the alleged ties with uh, his uh, his friend and conservative donor Harlan Crow. For, for folks who are not really read into this, can you can you just kind of briefly describe what it is that Chief Justice Ro- Chief I'm not sorry Chief Justice Roberts that Justice Thomas is being accused of, or what it is what it is that he has done that has really raised the eyebrows and calling and is calling for that some Democrats are calling for him to be removed, retire, or impeached. Right. So, um, you know, there was a series of pieces in ProPublica and since then in in a number of other outlets uh, sort of investigating, looking into this relationship between Justice Thomas and Harlan Crow, who is a Republican uh, donor. Um, And, uh, you know, the top lines are um, that, uh, and nobody disputes, I think, these facts, um, that, that, Harlan Crow uh, paid for um, uh, jet travel, private jet travel uh, for Justice Thomas and his wife, um, hosted him at a number of uh, properties around the world uh, for vacations, 
Um, there was subsequent reporting about some property transactions where uh, Mr. Crow uh, apparently purchased um, some property that uh, was owned by uh, Thomas and his family. Uh, and there are a number of other stories that sort of continue on from there, but that's that's kind of the top line. Um, and, you know, that is unusual, right? Um, there, there have not been a lot of um, <laughs> there have not been a lot of cases like that. Um, the way that Thomas uh, has explained this is to say that uh, he has long been longtime friends with Harlan Crow, and that this is just a personal relationship. And I think, um, you know, what they what Thomas would also say, I think, is that there have not been cases before the court. Well, at least not many cases before the court involving Crow. There was a case um, where the court uh, declined cert, um, where Crow was not a named party, but was involved uh, in the case. And so it's not completely true that there are no cases. But I, I think you know Thomas would argue, like, look, it's not like, um, you know, there's a, a whole list of cases we can point to here with Crow's involvement at the court. You know, and so that's their argument. I think the the Democratic counter to that is, um, look, we don't know the full extent of of why, um, you know, why these this money changed hands or what Harlan Crow was up to. And certainly, um, you know, I think there has been an effort by groups on both sides to influence the court. And I think the question is, is this an effort to do that um, or not? And perhaps uh, the answer to that remains to be seen. Right. And, and I know that conservatives have also leveled accusations of unethical behavior from uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor and um, uh, conservative Neil Gorsuch has also been um, come un- has come under the microscope microscope by some for violating some unwritten ethics rules with regard to book deals and 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 not recusing themselves from particular cases involving that publisher can you talk a little bit about about what it is that they're accused of yeah so uh, you know this is a point that's worth raising is that um, some of these recusal questions have been posed to both liberal and conservative justices and the book case is a good example of that here you've got um, uh, Justice Sotomayor who was uh, nominated by a Democratic president Justice Gorsuch nominated by President Trump uh, both sort of coming under the same scrutiny for declining to recuse in a case a series of cases uh, involving um, uh, Penguin Random House uh, publisher of their books. They both had written books published by this company, um, and they uh, did not recuse. I believe it was a copyright infringement case that Penguin was involved in. Uh, This is going back a few years. And, um, you know, there's some question about whether they should have recused given that they received a good deal of royalties. I think in Justice Sotomayor's case, it's something like $3 million. And in Justice Gorsuch's case, it's uh, several hundred thousand, six hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Um, You know, you know, I think I think it points to the fact that the there's not a lot of clarity around the recusal rules. And, you know, that's a fair thing to point at both sides on. I do think it's worth pointing out, though, that in the case of both Justice Gorsuch and Justice Sotomayor, that they did disclose these payments, right? So the public had a chance to see um, that these payments were coming in uh, on their annual disclosure forms. Um, and, you know, people can make up their mind about whether that's um, whether that's a good, fair, you know, fair game, if it's, if it's uh, above board or not. But um, the public had a chance to at least understand that these payments were coming in. 
um, in the case of the book publishers. And, you know, uh, a lot of the justices, of course, publish books. Um, uh, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, has a book coming out. Uh, Justice uh, Jackson has a book coming out. So, um, uh, you know, it's it's fairly common for them to uh, rake in a good deal of money uh, from from book sales. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent and a very fair point. And, and of course, you know, justices have have private lives and had private lives, and we have seen justices recuse themselves from certain cases based on uh, previous history. So, um, it's certainly something to keep an eye on. It's it's not a topic that's going to go away. Certainly, as the magnifying glass is on the Supreme Court now, as much as it has ever been, if not more so. Uh, and you're doing really great writing on this for the USA Today. So make sure you are following John Fritzy's work over at USA Today. John, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate it, too. All right, John, thanks so much for that interview, that conversation there and breaking down that topic. Really appreciate it. That leaves us with time here for one last thing on the podcast. And we're going to take a look at Romans 8, 38 and 39. What it actually says, not uh, the mom who wrote it in in a letter to her son, a very odd letter uh, where she paraphrased it. But here's what it actually says. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that's not talking about each of us and a mom and a son or a dad and a son. It's talking about, you know, Paul's making the case here that, hey, like if God's for us, who can be against us? There's nothing that... that can separate us from the love of Christ. And that's what he's getting at, not some earthly relationship. Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter who's in office or as we're talking about what choice we have and where we send our children to school because God is accessible at all times and wherever we are. And that's Mm -hmm. so encouraging to, I know we know that, but it's just encouraging to repeat it. Yeah, absolutely is. And it's a great place to leave it here for the week. Madison, great job this week filling in for Billy and Trey. I'm glad you stopped by and you uh, hung out with us here getting through the news of the craze we do each and every week. We're going to head out of here on a high note into the weekend, a three-day weekend. So Lord willing and that creek don't rise, we shall be back here on Tuesday with more. God bless. See you then.